Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thank you for that introduction there. We have a very strong guest for you this week, Christine Brennan from USA Today, columnist. She's been writing for 40-plus years. Of course, she was the Miami Herald's first female reporter in 1981. She's been breaking down barriers. That's just what she's been doing her whole career. Think about the people she's worked with. We get into some really fun stories about the time she spent at the Washington Post. She covered the Washington football team. But she got to know the likes of, of course, Michael Wilbon, who she went to school with in Northwestern. Uh, other legends, maybe uh, Tony Kornheiser. So she got to see how these guys wrote their columns and learned from the best, literally. And now, of course, those guys are no longer writing. They're out gabbing uh, on TV for a living. But just great stuff. You're going to hear so much enthusiasm. That's what struck me the most when I first met Christine Brennan 2012 U.S. Open, we were on a media shuttle ride coming back that night after Webb Simpson won, and it's her enthusiasm for what she does. She is so passionate about sports, and she is not one to be short on opinions. You hear so much in this upcoming interview about Jack Nicholas. She put him on the spot at the Masters. She has talked to so many other folks as well. Of course, she's been covering the Olympics extensively for the last three-plus decades. This is very much uh, someone who is in the know with so many important sports topics, the Big Ten and their decisions to play or not play early on. She has very strong opinions about that, about the Pac-12, about the SEC. We have a power-packed episode here, but we do focus, and we're going to start on the Masters 2020. She was out there, as she always is, covering the Masters, and her insights, if you read her stuff, her insights are some of the best when she describes the scene, set the scene there on that Monday of the Masters and what the colors were like at the greatest intersection in sports at Amen Corner. So we will get here to Christine Brennan, one of my good friends in the sports world. Before that, we're going to get to my friends at Encore Golf. Go to EncoreGolf.com. They produce some amazing golf balls. The one I've been working with recently, the Vero X1. I love this golf ball, guys. I'm hitting the ball 10 yards further. So that's just a, a testament to, to the distance there. But it is built for intermediate or advanced players. So as you pick up, there's different options there too. They have the Avant and some other really good options there with the golf balls, but it's a low driver spin, which helps me a lot because I'm a high spin kind of guy, for optimal distance and control. Enhanced perimeter weighting for accuracy and control as well. So there's really good combination, of course, chipping around the greens. You have that extra feel, that extra control as well, but the perimeter weighting does help uh, with that aspect. So check it out, Encore Golf. They are all over social media. Check them out on Instagram, at Encore Golf. And you will not be disappointed. I love uh, the stuff they're producing there. Anyway, let's get to Christine Brennan, one of the very best people in sports in terms of her enthusiasm, in terms of her opinions. And we're going to get to it right here on Beyond the Clubhouse. 
Well, I am very pleased to be joined by my next guest, Christine Brennan. Of course, you can read her on USA Today. She's a columnist, sports columnist. She's been at this for so many years. I know she was at the Miami Herald in 1981. She's broken so many barriers for women in sports journalism. Christine, how are you doing? Garrett, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for that kind introduction, and it's, uh, it's great to be uh, on with you. Hope you're doing well also. Thank you. Yeah, well, anytime there's a Masters, and I feel like I see you at every Masters, at least the last seven or eight years that I've been out there. What for you is it like, I guess, soaking this particular one in? I know your, your detail of a stroll around Augusta on a Monday with the fall colors. We never see it like this. Your detail was unbelievable in your column that night. How did you come up with kind of your observations and put those to words? Well, that's very kind of you, Garrett. I, uh, it was a labor of love. I mean, you know, it's your job to go and walk around Augusta National at this most unique time. I, I never lose sight of the fact how lucky I am and how fortunate I am that USA Today uh, allows me to do these things. And that gives me the platform to write columns uh, about golf and the Olympics and college football and pro football and everything else I, I'm so fortunate to get to do. So that was a particularly delightful moment. And it was the first day of Masters Week. It was Monday of the most unusual and unique uh, tradition unlike any other times 100, you know, the, the Masters in November. And, you know, think about it. And this is what I put in the column. This is a place that we see one week a year and it's in April and no one had ever laid eyes on the place other than other than members or, or their guests, but none of the public, none of the vast, you know, vast majority of millions and millions of sports fans around the world had never laid eyes on the place on this iconic spot in sports history and this iconic venue. Uh, at any other time other than that, we had never laid eyes on, on Augusta National in November. And so just that opportunity, Garrett, to see that, just to, you know, breathe that in and walk around and just see it at some other time. You know, we, the Rose Bowl is used other times. It's not just January 1st, New Year's Day for a bowl game. You know, the Brandy Chastain winning the Women's World Cup in 99 was in July. So, you know, we see the Rose Bowl at different times. It's used for college football, of course. Uh, Fenway Park has been used for hockey games and uh, you know, the Winter Classic football games. Wrigley Field has been used for the Winter Classic, has been used for college football, including my alma mater, Northwestern. You know, not just baseball for Fenway or Wrigley Field, but this, you know, when I try to put it, Augusta National in that category of venues, of just places that, that we associate with one thing and one time period and every year. And so that was fascinating to me. And then I went with Tara Sullivan of the Boston Globe. We just happened to run into each other. I was like, hey, you're here. I'm here too. Of course, we're all messed up. And so out I went. Out we, she went. She and I went. And we went out. You know, we basically beelined to Amen Corner uh, and walked uh, uh, over to 11, obviously 12, and then, uh, you know, the tee shots on 13, and then walked down 13, and then worked our way back to the clubhouse because we were both on deadline. Um, so I would have loved to stay out there all day, but it was a beautiful day, and you could see some of those fall colors. I'm sure as, as everyone who watched the tournament later in the week saw that there weren't that many. I mean, the predominant color wrote that day was pine green, and, you know, there's so many beautiful pines that, of course, those day are evergreen, and so that was the green color we saw. There were no pastels, those spring pastels we're so used to, the, the, uh, the blooming azaleas. The azaleas were there, but they weren't blooming. So they were green. And then and there was the occasional tree, as I know you saw, where there was a, a, a burst of orange or, or yellow or red even. And that, I saw that, uh, we saw that on the 11th fairway, the left side, 
uh, and it happened to be um, a few golfers, a group that was, uh, was, was there at that point and silhouetted against that. And, and uh, Louis Oosthuizen was, was shot and I was like, wow, that's a very, very pretty picture to see him uh, with this, this, this burst of yellow and, and orange and red there. So, you know, th that was it. It was just seeing it at a different time. And then what hits you immediately, and I'm sorry for the long answer, but really I think the most significant thing I saw that day that then played out through the rest of the week was no ropes, no gallery ropes, because of course there were no galleries, um, as the masters likes to call them, you know, patrons, I call them fans or spectators or galleries. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's what we call them. But, uh, you know, they, they can, of course, uh, all due respect, they can call them what they want. And, uh, and so, you know, to not see any galleries, uh, to not see any fans, to have the run of the place. And that was clear Monday, but it became even more clear. And I'm sure you felt this way too, right? That Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday during the tournament when it would have been packed, all of a sudden you could walk right from the first green to the second tee. And there's the second tee and you can see the second tee. And for those who don't know the parameters with, under which we work as, as journalists, at some golf tournaments, US Open, obviously a lot of local week to week golf tournaments uh, that are of course can be very significant, we are allowed as journalists to walk inside the ropes with a special credential or armband or whatever. But the masters were not allowed to do that. And that's fine. I total respect. That's totally great. No problem. I don't, I don't care really. It's fine. Um, but we're then with the masses. So we're, they're 20 deep, right? 30 deep to get to look at the, at the second tee. Those people have waited all day to have those groups come from the first screen to the second tee. So there's just no way that a journalist as we're walking along with a group, we can't, and we can't camp out at one hole that just, you know, that's not consistent with then writing a column about a golf tournament that's going on everywhere or writing stories about that. And so, um, so just, you know, there's just no way to get close to the second tee, which is fine. That's totally fine. And then all of a sudden I was, it kind of took my breath away. I was like, wait a minute, there's no one there. We can walk right up to the second tee. I mean, you could, I could hear what Tiger was talking about uh, with one of the other caddies as they walked down the second fairway. I couldn't get every word and I wasn't eavesdropping about it. Um, but the point was you could hear a, the general conversation without being able to make out uh, every word. Um, and it was nothing, you know, I think it was just shooting the breeze. But the point is, sure. that's how close we were. And that's, if someone described it, it would be like Fleetwood Mac showing up in your backyard to play a concert just for you. Um, I think that's a good, or Chicago or Billy Joel or, you know, Springsteen or, you know, Taylor Swift, whoever's your, who's ever your person, um, you know, to uh, the group that you like or, uh, you know, Aretha Franklin showing up, whatever. And just having that concert, um, people dead or alive, obviously, to have that concert, the Beatles, I guess, I'd pick, uh, to uh, have them in your backyard. That's what this was like in terms of this unbelievable, unique experience and it's a shame, I want to just add one last thing as I go on and on, sorry, but it really was a remarkable. Yeah. Unbelievable uh, Is that we, we totally understood, as, I, as you did, we all did, that this was, we were fortunate to have this opportunity and lucky and appreciative of it. But of course, what it meant was that so many people, especially people who maybe don't go every year, maybe this was one shot, 2020, that it was you know, postponed till November and then they couldn't go that they didn't get that opportunity. And that's really important to say, that um, I, I'm not glorying in it for the sake of saying, oh, you know, tough, you get, didn't get a chance to go. No, 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 we're in the midst of a pandemic and anyone who's followed my columns know how I feel about college football being played right now. It should not be being played. 
golf, of course, is social distancing before there was social distancing. And so, you know, uh, golf and their professionals, which is the difference between the NFL to me and college game. Uh, pro, pros can do this if they want. Um, but, uh, but so the, these professional golfers have made this decision. The tour has made this decision. The tournaments, the majors made this decision. The decisions, you know, three of the four men's majors were played this year. Got the Women's U.S. Open yet to come. Yes. But those are professionals. And that's a different thing. And you can, and you can keep, um, it's not a football game. It's not everyone's on top of everyone for three and a half hours. So, so, but having said that, I understand there was great heartache for a lot of fans who probably this was their one shot to go to the, the Masters and they missed that opportunity. So there's no glorying in that. I'm just trying to paint the picture for you as you asked about what that looked like and how dramatic it was. And I think the most breathtaking for me was on Saturday walking around with my colleague from Golf Week, Adam Shupak, and we were just going along on the 15th, along the 15th fairway on the left side of it going down. And all of a sudden I realized we could go to the bridge there and stand and watch 15 green and then 16 T. Again, places you just would never go. So it was just this once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of explore this most majestic of places uh, in a way that we will never probably have again. And I, I certainly was appreciative of every moment of that for sure. Yes, well, you talked about things being different with no ropes. You know, when, when you're out there and you see Amy Mickelson, who's not even five feet tall, Phil Mickelson's wife, she was overjoyed to be able to finally see and not have to look over you know, t tons of patrons to be able to see her husband, Phil. So that was part of it. No agents on property, which I think was a, was a huge part of it too, because you don't have those gatekeepers always saying, hey, yes, you can talk to this player or that. You know, there's a different vibe without without the agents as well. You mentioned college football. I want to go to that real quick. Okay, obviously voluntary, you know, if, if play, players are in college, they don't have the choice, right? So, so what is kind of the, your overall opinion on why it should not be played right now? Yeah, I, I just think, as I mentioned, Garrett, you know, it, it's the, the social distancing aspect. Again, golf was social distancing before we even heard the term. And I say that with a smile, and I know they appreciate that, you know, too, and they're outside. Um, so that's why indoor sports, it's tougher, of course. And that's why the NBA and the WNBA had to be in a bubble. There's just no way. And we're going to see what men's and women's college basketball, it's already we're seeing. UConn is having to pause. Um, I, I just think this could get very difficult. And, and you know, these are 18 to 22-year-olds, 18 to 23-year-olds, whatever they are, playing college football. So to stick with the football piece of your question. And um, they're part of a community. And it's a college campus. And some of these colleges do not have students back, or if they do have students back, maybe they don't have freshmen, sophomores back, or they have, you know, whatever, they're juggling it. And they've closed dorms, or they've limited the amount of people that can be on campus, or no one on campus, uh, especially, on, you know, younger uh, students, uh, freshmen, sophomores, what have you, first years and uh, second years on campus. And yet, your football team's on campus, and yet you're the ones that are saying, don't pay the football players. And that, to me, is it. I've always said, and anyone who's followed me, uh, we should not be paying uh, these college athletes because they're students, because they get college scholarships, because they get training tables, because they get the exposure that a violinist would kill for. You know, the student violinist in the student symphony, what would she say if she got 8 to 11 on, a, on a ABC on a Saturday night to show off for every symphony in the world, right? And Prime that's, time. You know, so that, that forum, that, that platform, the training, the coaching, everything, I've always felt you don't need to pay them a salary because there are so many inherent benefits. I understand, of course, the argument on the other side, and that's not what you're asking me. But 
the argument of not paying athletes, football players, and anyone that, if you're playing football players, you should pay the field hockey players. If that argument, because of Title IX, I know there's revenue issues, unless you're going to split football off and not have it be part of your college athletic department, then you're going to have to pay the field hockey players and the women's and men's soccer players as well, or you'll have lawsuits at every university in the country. Um, and maybe that's where we're headed. But but now that argument of, play, uh, well, we can't pay football players because they're students. Well, baloney. <laughs> you, know, that's, uh, you know, that's a bunch of malarkey to quote uh, Joe Biden. You know, that's just, um, it's ridiculous. I mean, obviously, Biden did not say that about, about college football. He just, that was sure. his line, right? No malarkey or something. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I just think you can't make that argument anymore. And so many of these athletic directors and university presidents have held the line and said, no, we cannot pay these, you know, these athletes. We can't pay football players. We can't pay men's or women's basketball players. Well, that's now out the window because you are treating them in an entirely different manner than you're treating your regular students. And that myth that they're students, just like other students, is gone. And you're riding their backs. I mean, what these universities are doing, to me, it's appalling. Uh, these universities are riding the backs of 18 to 22, 23-year-olds to make their 40, 50 million, whatever they make in their TV contracts, which is incredibly significant and keeps jobs. And I get that too, but let's just say what it is. They made the choice to ride these athletes for money. That's it. And so the argument that you aren't gonna pay them is gone forever. And that, that will be one of, the, one of the definite results of this pandemic and the decision and of the Big Ten and others, but especially the Big Ten leading the way to, to reverse itself because of you know FOMO, <laughs> fear of missing out. No, no, no. And why aren't we playing? Well, you're not playing because your epidemiologists and your smart people that lead these wonderful research institutions in the Big Ten decided it was unhealthy to do it. Also, you're part of a community. So I'm a Northwestern grad, and full disclosure, I'm uh, a member of the 64-person um, Northwestern Board of Trustees. I had nothing to do with Northwestern's decision-making on this, and nothing at all. Um, and I'm also a professor of practice at the Medill School of Journalism. But again, nothing to do with the decision um, because it is a big board of trustees. I'm very proud to be on it and proud to be a Northwestern alum, but I, I, you know, I scorched this decision and, and would continue to at every, every turn. Uh, I just think it's appalling uh, what the Big Ten did. And it was all because, you know, Notre Dame's playing, but we're not. Well, then the moment Big Ten changed its mind, as you know, Garrett, Notre Dame had to miss a game. I mean, it was, um, but it, you're part of a community. You know, uh, Michigan students and football players are part of Ann Arbor's community. Northwestern students are part of Evanston's community. You're part of that community. One of the reasons that you don't have all the kids back, you don't have classes in session is for the, is for the uh, students to be safe, but also for the community, the older uh, residents in the community to not then be around those students at, um, at the, you know, waiting at Panera Bread. And yeah, so what- Relatable. Citizen. So obviously lots of thoughts on that subject, as you can tell, I don't, I, I am not keeping, I'm not keeping them myself. <laughs> And, um, you know, uh, so be it, here we are, and Northwestern's 5-0, and and people are like, oh, wow. And I said, yeah, that's great. They shouldn't be playing football. And um, I'm not watching because I'm, I'm keeping up with it, of course. I know what's going on uh, via Twitter and other things, but I'm not sitting down to watch games because I just think during a pandemic, it's just absolutely uh, reprehensible that these universities, these uh, institutions of higher learning, that should know better and should be leading the way for all of us on mass and on social distancing are um, exhibiting this kind of behavior of having, you know, all these, you know, 22 people on every play on top of each other, spitting and breathing and, and touching each other, everything that we are telling people not to do, unfortunately. And then of course, parties you have and the tailgating that's not supposed to happen, but Penn State people had to get yelled at and Ohio State, again, absolutely reprehensible uh, decision-making by the Big Ten, uh, unfortunately. Well, you talked 
schools that went along with it too, SEC, uh, Pac-12, um, ACC, et cetera. Well, you talked about clearly having an opinion about these kinds of topics. I'm curious, do you have a casual editor, whether it's a close friend? I mean, in 40 years of writing, do you have like a close friend that you kind of send your first copy to to say, hey, what do you think about the way this sounds? Is, it, is there anything to your process like that? Or is it more that you've, you've got to fine tune? There are times I do. It's a great question, Garrett. Times I do um, send it to a friend or, or run an idea by a friend or maybe even just a line, you know, just a, a phrase or a word even. Um, but most often I don't only because there's not enough time, you know, that I'm basically in a situation where it, I've got a, I'm on a deadline. So um, the, the Big Ten column that I wrote, um, that was when the Big Ten reversed itself. So I wrote one in, was that July, August or July, when the Big Ten, praising the Big Ten for, for following the Ivy League and making the decision, being the adults in the room. And then when the Big Ten switched, flip-flopped and brought football back, I wrote that column, and I believe that was in September. Um, day, the days and the <laughs> weeks and the months are kind of running <laughs> together, right? And, um, uh, and then, uh, so that when I started, I, we started hearing where that was going to happen on a Sunday, and I started writing it on a Sunday night. And I was with friends uh, at a dinner um, outside, just uh, dear friends, and we were talking about it. So I was kind of running my ideas by a couple of friends who are not journalists, but are, are dear friends. And so then I um, uh, wrote a good chunk of it Sunday. The decision didn't come until I think Tuesday. Yeah, I think it was Tuesday. So that day, Monday, I was tinkering with it, but doing other things too. And then, uh, and then Wednesday, Tuesday, you know, I got into better shape. So I had a lot of time to read it and look at it and think about it. So at this point in my career, I should be you know, not a good judge of what I'm saying. And, and uh, I, you know, that's, that's on me if I, if I make a mistake or if I, you know, uh, don't, or, or, or and not even a mistake, I mean, a mistake hopefully will not be made, but um, I, I double, triple, quadruple check all you students out there do that, everything. I've been doing this for years and I still go on at 11 at night and look online and just make sure that, you know, how many gold medals did Katie Ledecky win or, you know, how many uh, Masters has Tigers won? You know, you just check things even though you know them. I mean, you just double check um, uh, because you're only as good as your last column, your last story, my last TV appearance, whatever it might be. I really, I'm really so um, honored to have these opportunities that I never, ever take it lightly. And it takes a couple minutes and you've now quadruple checked and you feel great about it. Um, so, but I do, uh, I do, but I do have an editor also. So my normal editor today is Peter Barsali and he's wonderful and he's a, a veteran. He's great. We have a very, very good relationship and we're friends. And so I can easily send him something and say, hey, you know, did you laugh at that? Not necessarily in the Big Ten column, but you know, did you laugh at that? Was that funny? Was that, did that work? Did the ending work? And I'll usually ask him one or two questions after I send him the column and say, you know, I found that in that paragraph. Was that line okay? And how did I learn this, Garrett? How did I, where did I see this in action? When I worked at the Washington Post for 12 years from 84 to 96, um, I felt like I walked into the pages of a journalism textbook. You know, I'm uh, Catherine Graham, you run into Mrs. Graham in the elevator. Obviously, she's the owner uh, and the publisher. And uh, Ben Bradley was my editor. And, and of course, Watergate days, Bob Woodward's, excuse me, walking around. Carl Bernstein's still in town on occasion. See him at parties or what have, have you. Um, and then George Solomon, uh, the great sports editor of the Washington Post, who hired me. And, and um, you know, so I would... Uh, I would be sitting at my desk and Mike Wilbon, my college classmate, we met first time. <laughs> Fellow Northwestern. 
Exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, literally first day freshman year. And so Wilbon and I were sitting next to each other in the, in the newsroom, uh, in the sports section at, at uh, Washington Post. Kornheiser, Tony Kornheiser would come running out and say, hey, you know, I'm writing about this. What do you think of this word versus this word? And so I saw this in action uh, as, a, as a writer, not a columnist, as a reporter covering the NFL football team and, you know, other, other things in town, the Olympics, of course. And um, and I saw, you know, how, that, how Kornheiser, a top columnist, did that. And he'd come running over and ask Will Bonner me or ask other people about it in the, new, in the sports department, sports section. And so I, I learned that. And I got a chance to see that in action. So I've, I've really learned that you can literally pick in a column, no matter how many years you've done this, and just, just you know, tweak. Is this a better word or is this a better word? Or would there be a better example of this? And so I, I do that in my head as I write. And I think of those moments with, uh, with Tony, and who's a friend and neighbor. Um, and uh, of course, Will Bond is one of my best friends uh, for, for years and um, to this day. And so, you know, I, I, that's how I learned to really try to make every word you write better and to never mail it in and to always, always, um, you know, treat this column as like that someone on a plane is reading this column has never heard of me. And this is the first column they're reading with my name on it. And so that will be the impression they have of my work. That will be the impression they have of me. Um, and I guess I'm very old school in that sense, very old school that, you know, just good old hard work and double, triple, quadruple checking, whatever, um, are things that really hold you in good stead. I learned that from my parents and my teachers and, uh, in the suburbs of Toledo, Ohio and Ottawa Hills. And I, I've kept it with me all this time. So it's worked so far. So knock on wood, hopefully it will continue to work. Well, I love that you, you continue to give credit to where credit's due with your parents, with Tony and Mike. Tony and Mike have such a great energy about them. I, I love it. There's just something uh, palpable about their energy, excitement for, for sports. I wanted to ask you, we talked about writing. What about your interview style and how maybe younger people can learn from how you adapt to your different interview subjects? We're talking about Katie Ledecky. We're talking about Simone Biles. We're talking about golfers, so many different people that you talk to. How, how do you adapt to them? You know, I... There are times when I will write something down, write myself notes, and there are most times I don't, that I'm listening and I'm, I'm trying to hear what they have to say and I'm going to follow up. Um, and I think that if you can do that, sometimes you have one or two questions, you just don't have time for that. If it's a TV interview, um, which I'm normally the talking head on CNN or ABC, but if I'm doing an interview, you can have someone in your ear, so you, it can, a producer or someone, so a director, so that can be a little hard. You know, sometimes people wonder, why didn't you follow up? Not so much with me, but other people in TV. Well, because they're getting yelled at to go to a commercial. That's why, you know. Um, so there are other external factors that happen in journalism. But for, you know, a print interview, if I have time, um, I, I'm, I'm listening. I, you know, I know there are people, and I'm sure there are people watching this who feel I have an agenda. Uh, obviously, I've asked very tough questions. I can talk about my question to Jack Nicholas at the, at the Masters, uh, which I'm very proud of, and which was Journalism 101, <laughs> by the way. Uh, any journalist should ask questions like that. Um, but I, um, with all due respect, of course, to Jack Nicholas, which is how I started the question. Um, but I think that... Um, you know, in, in general, my, my goal is, as I said, to not have, I don't have an agenda, is to listen and to follow up. So often it's a blank slate. And, and Garrett, I've even written books with that in mind. Um, I um, was very fortunate to have a bestseller for, with Scribner, Inside Edge, the first journalistic look ever at the wildly popular sport of figure skating, Olympic skating, um, back in 1996 is when the book came out became a bestseller and really changed my life. It was right 
two years after the Tanya Nancy scandal and saga. And it's just a voracious appetite for skating at that point, TV ratings, everything. And so I captured it right at the sweet spot there. And I, I had uh, a whole book outline. And I, if you look at the book, it's very different than the book outline. I've always felt, and I, you know, I, others I'm sure may agree or disagree, but that I am a journalist who just wants to go where the story takes me. As a columnist, obviously I give my opinion, but as a journalist, as a reporter, which I was for up until basically 93 at the Post, I did some columns and then 97 onward with USA Today as a columnist, that's opinion. That means I'm supposed to give my opinion, which I think some people on Twitter don't understand that. So it's, it's <laughs> it goes over flash. their head. Yeah, yeah newsflash on that one. But, but, um, but as a reporter, I, I really do. So even with books, I've, I've let the news take me to a certain place. And, um, and I don't have an agenda and I don't go in going, I want this to happen or I want people to do the X, Y, Z because of this. I never do. Even when I first went to Augusta National in 99, first time I ever covered the Masters, hmm. sat in that first press conference, Hootie Johnson's you know, Wednesday press conference as the chairman and people are asking about, about you know, what's going on with changes on the golf course and all that. And I'm, I'm, they're all, many of these people are my dear friends. Well, I've dated a couple of them over the years. One was a longtime boyfriend. I mean, I have great respect for the golf writers. And, and again, I know all, knew all of them, most of them back in 99. And, uh, but then I waited towards the end and I just dawned on me, do we know? And I, I think I'd asked one other person, but now I saw an opening, I raised my hand. Can you tell us how many uh, women members? Do you have any women members? Do you have, and not, do you have black members? I think that we knew we had, there was at least one African-American male member, Ron Townsend. And how many black members do you have? And Hootie Johnson said, that's a club matter and club matters are private. And I followed up as any journalist would and follow, reasonable follow about, about the numbers or whatever. I, you know, it's, this is all written down. I've got it in my book, you know, uh, best seat in the house, my father daughter memoir. So anyway, and, and that's just, and everyone's like going, wow, what a tough question. And I'm going like, that is so not a tough question. <laughs> that's journalism. So, you know, I realized that, um, you know, and maybe people think I'm out of line and it, it, at the masters well that's not out of line in fact what's embarrassing is that they're saying this with great respect for my colleagues in golf golf media again dear friends uh there should be much much more of that going on and i i would dare say just as a, a thought off the top of my head garrett that had there been that kind of questioning from more than me and lenny shapiro who was um golf writer for the washington post for many years dear friend and uh my editor also when i was covering the nfl because he'd also covered the washington football team before i did for the post uh lenny occasionally asked and there were a couple other journalists um a, a woman or two uh from um overseas from uh, great britain i believe the uk who asked uh and uh, marcia chambers was on the story as well and wrote a book about it uh, about the exclusionary policies of golf uh, for women. You know, if, but I just say if there'd been more, if it had been a widespread thing, then Augusta National would have had women members much earlier. And it would have been, because the questions would have brought it to a head as opposed to being outliers and looking at it as kind of like, what a weird, you know, person troublemaker that I am. Again, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> and, um, and, and then it would have, and, and guess what? To take it a step further, Golf would be so much better for it. Um, I think one of the huge mistakes in golf, I, and I think it's demographic and I think it will be long lasting, is to put a stop sign out by, you know, the, the most, obviously, Augusta National is a private golf course. It could do what it wants, of course. 
but it becomes a very public face of golf once a year. And it really is one of the great stakeholders in the game. And so when Augusta National put up that stop sign saying, no woman, no women, you, we don't want you. That's what they did. And then, of course, the point of a bayonet with Hootie after uh, Martha Burke read my column in USA Today. I didn't know Martha Burke. I never met her. Uh, I don't meet every reader of USA Today. There were millions back then, so I couldn't read, couldn't know them. Somehow, some of the golf writers thought I was in cahoots with Martha Burke. I didn't know her. Uh, uh, but she read my column in USA Today, which, you know, other people would read columns in USA Today. It was like, as I said, people buy the newspaper everywhere and, uh, and read it. And so Martha Burke writes that letter because of, she reads this column in 2002. And even then, if, if Hootie, who I liked a lot, uh, and we got along fine, uh, if Hootie Johnson had done something right then, instead he did the point of a bayonet line, as I think everyone knows, and it was and it, and, and game on, and it was just the fight was on. Uh, what an awful, awful decision by Augusta National. Um, if they had said, no, we want women, where would the game of golf be today? Because right at the time that, that the game of golf basically put a stop sign out and said 51, 50, 51% of our population, we don't want you. Now, you know, that's not the case. USGA wanted women, whatever. But in general, the overriding thought was golf is not for women. And I talked to women about that. You know, it was just such a prominent conversation and such a huge nationwide story that girls and women in their teens and, you know, you know young girls in their teens, 20, women in their 20s, 30s, saw that exactly, Garrett, at the time that we had the crest of the wave of Title IX hitting this country with millions of girls being pumped out of college and high schools and college every year, playing sports just like their brothers, loving sports, being great athletes, learning how to win at a young age, learning how to lose at a young age, teamwork, sportsmanship. These are women who are gonna be rock stars in life, in business, in politics. We're seeing them in Congress now. Uh, we're seeing them in Biden's cabinet. Well, obviously we have a, a woman vice president for the first time ever, Kamala Harris, vice president-elect. I don't think she was an athlete per se, but she was a dancer. Um, and we're gonna see more and more, all these women are just coming. It's just waves and waves of women who've learned, as I said, those life lessons through sports who are going to be great leaders, who are going to be successes, who are gonna have disposable income the rest of their lives. And guess what? They're not playing golf the way they should be. Now, you get numbers, Susie Whaley, uh, Ty Votaw, I talked to them. You know, obviously, um, Fred Ridley is working hard on this. Now. And I get it, and I'm glad, because I played golf. My dad wanted his daughters as well as his son to play golf. So I played golf since I was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, hitting golf balls at a private, or at a public, excuse me, public. My dad would not join a place where his daughters couldn't go. So anyone, any club like Inverness in Toledo that that um, that excluded women, my dad would not play with his buddies, um, he refused to. So when people ask, <laughs> how does this all get going to me? Uh, I say the biggest Republican I knew, my dad, a liberal Republican, obviously would not recognize this Republican party, passed away in 03, my dad did. Um, but um, George Bush's vice chair in Ohio in 88, that's where I got the idea from my dad because he wouldn't go to a discriminatory place if his daughters could not and his wife could not set foot there. And that's how I learned this. And if the game of golf had learned this early on, oh my God, what a different place they would be because now so, most women are not playing golf. Most of these athletes, and I'm sorry to go on and on, but I think this is such an important point demographically and for the future of the game of golf because basically the demographics for golf are dead and nearly dead. Obviously that's a joke, but <laughs> it's really not good. I mean, white men, you got white men. <laughs> yeah, good job. <laughs> You've attracted the white male. But if you want to sell more golf balls, 
and more clothes and more rounds of golf and more everything about the game of golf, you need your, your expanding new market. Any business person would tell you that. Mm. And instead, you, you shut the door on that for decades. And now they're trying to recoup, which is why they're having the, the women's amateur and doing other things at Augusta and other places. And of course, the USGA now cares about it. And I understand that. That's great. Uh, I think it's too late. I think it's way too late because those women have already gone to marathons and half marathons and Pilates and um, soccer leagues and kickball leagues and tennis leagues and, and everything else. Um, and, and by and large are not flooding the game of golf the way they should. And I know the pandemic was good for the game of golf. And I know there's going to be people saying, oh, but golf is adding X number of women. You should be adding a lot more. You should be at, this is the perfect game for these women who are going, as I said, who are leaders in business and are going to be able to spend money the rest of their lives because they're so successful because we taught them how to play, to uh, be successful by playing sports. And golf turned them away for decades. Mm. Well done, golf. Well done. And uh, yeah, the last thought on that is, you know, the greatest capitalists among us, the leaders of golf, Garrett, you know, the leaders of these country clubs, um, the leaders of Augusta National, the leaders of the game of golf, the greatest capitalists among us chose sexism over capitalism. What an unbelievable uh, turn of events and, and I believe a huge mistake. So anyway, I'm sorry, got on that, but I just find that fascinating since we're talking golf that uh, the demographics of golf moving forward, I think they've got a real problem. Now they're trying to catch up. And yes, some women play golf. I like to play golf, I played, but I only play once a year, maybe in a charity event. I haven't I played once in the last, twice in the last three years. And, um, and I'm not gonna probably play much more than that because it also takes a long time and there's so many other sports to play. And I think that's the problem with golf. And I grew up with golf and I love golf. So um, this is not about bashing golf. This is about the future of golf and hoping that these people really get with the plan. And um, I don't know what they do now, but they got to do something because they, they lost, you know, what, two, three, four decades. Well, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten decades, you know, in terms mm -hmm. of pushing what they play, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, you've always said Title IX is one of the greatest uh, pieces of legislation in, in the U.S. I wanted to wrap up with two quick rapid-fire questions for you. Number one, and this is very light, number one, who is your go-to um, music that you listen to, your all-time band or, or group you like to listen to? Uh, I would say Chicago, and, and now I'm dating myself. I mean, I, I, again, I meant, you know, I love Billy Joel. <laughs> and again, people are going, oh my God. Uh, love Chicago, love Fleetwood Mac. Um, the, you know, the old, the old tunes from high school, uh, college. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm much more music from the past than, than now. I'm certainly aware of music now, of course. I'm sorry, this is not a rapid fire, fire answer, but, but I do love those, those old, old tunes from the high school and college days. If you could pick an, um, your go-to all-time favorite movie or TV show, whether it's Netflix, which, which uh, come to mind there? A couple of thoughts. Uh, certainly, um, I mean, just, just growing up with and loving the sound of music. Um, and by the way, Billy Payne, who of course was chairman of Augusta National. And before that, he ran the Atlanta Olympics. And I covered that extensively when I was at the Washington Post. I was the Olympics writer. So really I knew Billy Payne very well, all the way from 89, 90 to 90, 91, all the way to 96. I was in his office a lot in Atlanta. And I don't think there's any man who's seen the sound of music more than Billy Payne. I don't know if people know that. Uh, and we would sit in his office and, and sing uh, Do Re Mi and, you know, my favorite <laughs> Climb every mountain. I mean, not the whole song, but you know, yes, we have a the classics. Quick, yes, quick laugh about that. So, um, so there's a golf Augusta connection with the sound of music. Um, I love Field of Dreams. Uh, I love A League of Their Own. Uh, 
you know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, just spectacular. Uh, La La Land was one that I really enjoyed from the last few years. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of movies, um, books, uh, and um, uh, I, you know, even like The Americans, which of course, not exactly like The Sound of Music. <laughs> it's a little different. Yeah. Well, Christine, it's been a, a blast uh, getting to know you more here on Beyond the Clubhouse. And of course, you guys can follow her on Twitter at C Brennan Sports. Great follow. And again, enjoy uh, the rest of your day. Thanks for taking some time, Christine. Garrett, my pleasure. Thanks. Sorry for talking your ear off, but uh, love talking with you. And thanks so much. And best wishes to you. Thanks so much. A pleasure to be joined by Christine Brennan, of course, from USA Today. Never short on opinions, but she has so much enthusiasm, so much to back up, so many, so many facts to back up where she's coming from as well. Uh, so very insightful stuff on the 2020 Masters, setting the scene, what that was like for her covering it, putting Jack Nicholas on the spot with some tough questions. Uh, hey, Christine, she does not mind pulling any punches at any point. So always helpful to kind of hear her perspective on things. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Hope you guys uh, had a blast with it as well. And you can follow her on Twitter at Sports. You can follow me on Twitter at Johnston Garrett. You can follow the podcast here at Beyond Clubhouse. And here's a reason why. We're going to have tons of video interviews from this interview, but also future interviews. Just a little snapshots, 30 seconds, as you may have already seen on Twitter, but you should check them out. Instagram as well, at Garrett Johnston Golf and at Beyond the Clubhouse Podcast. The best 40-second sound bites from these interviews are going to post them. You're going to see them online you can see the expression on on the guests faces as they deliver these lines as they deliver kind of their opinion uh their answers to these questions so hope you enjoyed it just have Brittany Lincecum and really enjoyed having you guys here on beyond the clubhouse we'll talk to you again here very soon